0: And welcome to episode 247 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in Ann Arbor.
1: And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. Before we get started, we'd like to thank our sponsor. We'd like to thank ServeNow, a nationwide network of trusted, pre-screened process servers. Work with the most professional process servers who've got experience with high-volume serves, embrace technology, and understand the litigation process. Visit ServeNow.com to learn more. And we also wanted to mention that the second edition of our
0: book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, is available on Amazon. Everyone agrees these days that collaboration is essential, but knowing the right tools will make all the difference. In our last episode, we discussed blogging and social media, the hub and spoke approach, and whether social media has killed the blogging star, as well as my personal dislike of tweet storms. In this episode, I've acceded to Tom's wishes, and we have a special interview guest. It's me. Woo-hoo! Maybe. Not exactly what Tom had in mind, but hey, it's a start. The
1: topic is my new book on innovation in law. Tom, what's on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Model Report, we will indeed be discussing your brand new book on innovation in law. In our second segment, we've uh, taken note that the debate over whether lawyers need to learn how to code has fired up again, and we wonder if our answers to that question have changed since the last time we asked it uh, in this podcast. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, our special guest interview. Seems like between the two of us, Dennis has been doing a lot more interesting things lately, uh, including doing a lot of writing. One of Dennis's new books uh, is called Successful Innovation Outcomes in Law, A Practical Guide for Law Firms, Law Departments, and Other Legal Organizations. I've read some of it. I read some of the draft. Uh, I haven't read it all yet because I don't think it's quite out yet. Um, What I have read is really good. Dennis, I know that the first question on our listeners' mind clearly is, why'd you write a book without me? You know, it is really hard to believe. And although my usual,
0: my other co-writer is is uh, Allison Shields, but Hugh and I, uh, I'm not saying that we won't write another book. We've actually been talking about it, but we had just finished the Collaboration Tools book and we had some other projects, but, you know, sort of events got in the way. And uh, um, I didn't expect to write a book myself, but it just sort of appeared in front of me, and uh, and I went ahead and did it. Um, and I will let you know that uh, I did. I just got before we started recording an email from my book designer with the final files that I will be uploading to Amazon. So uh, if if I do things correctly, uh, the book will be available by the time people are listening to the show.
1: Oh, excellent! Well, breaking news. So let's start about the topic, the topic of innovation. Um, why did you choose that as the topic for your book?
0: Well, I've been really involved in the world of innovation in in the legal space for, in a lot of ways over the last few years. And although I'm probably known for legal tech as you are, Tom, it's, I sort to feel that legal tech was just one Piece of a bigger of the bigger picture, and that picture is change and in innovation in law. And although I think that technology is essential in in all of that innovation, not everybody thinks the same way. I I, I don't believe. Uh, so we've done the podcast where people say it's it's people process and then maybe technology. And I, I think the opposite of that, but I i started to look at innovation and in the teaching I was doing, I decided there's a whole established, you know, body of work research uh, and, and other tools out there that are used in other industries in law. And I spent a lot of time, like probably a good year or so, just learning about that in connection with my classes. And... I realized that it made sense to come at the changes I like to see in the legal profession and the delivery of legal services from the framework of innovation, uh, changing business models, things like that, rather than, um, you know, purely looking at the the technologies. And I think if people go back and look at the podcast we've done over the last several years, I think that they'll notice that's been a theme in the podcast we've done.
1: So let's um, set the table for the rest of the questions. Every time I seem to see people talking about innovation, I get the feeling that there are different definitions, um, that people are thinking of innovation in different ways. So can you kind of give our listeners an understanding of what definition you settled on for innovation and maybe more particularly for legal innovation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I sort of come down to this notion of it's applied creativity that increases or enhances customer value, and I also think that implied in that is a, a rethinking of business models. So I, I think that all those components have to be there, uh, especially the the enhancement of customer value. And so that's where I went with this. That's sort of a classic definition, and I provide a number of definitions to give you a, a feel for that. I, I do... I don't mind the legal innovation uh, phrase, and I have a chapter in the book about that because I think it's just useful for for lawyers to understand that there is a flavor of innovation that that makes sense in law. And you know, there's there's legal tech, there's legal everything, uh, you know. So I don't think it hurts to use the the phrase legal uh, innovation. So I'm not, you know, hung
1: up on that at all, but I- Well, hold on, let's let's dig in on that for a second. So do you think that there's a difference between innovation as a concept and legal innovation? My approach to innovation, I would say there is no difference in what
0: uh, you would do in law as compared to any place else other than that your constraints are a little bit different, you know. So you have ethical rules, you have some other things like that 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 inhibit or constrain uh, what you can do. Um, I do think that there, you sometimes see that because people don't have that background in the whole literature on innovation, that people kind of get focused on certain areas. So, I think in law, there's a tendency to do what I would call efficiencies and incremental innovation as being the focus. And so I think when people talk about process, you're in that range. But I think that what's more interesting to me, and this won't surprise anybody who knows me, is is how can you go much further and look at the whole business model, the whole ecosystem, how things play together, and how you can make significant change, like I said, that enhances the the value that a customer gets.
1: So I think I know the answer to this question, but it's a softball question, so I'm going to ask it anyway, because the, the title of your book says that it's a practical guide for law firms, law departments, and other legal organizations. Is that your audience, Are you, or do you have a more specific audience in mind within that group?
0: You know, it's funny, like the last thing I did on the book was I had this debate with myself whether I wanted to say it was a practical guide for law departments, law firms, and other legal or organizations. And the more law firms I talk to, I actually think my audience is really the law departments because I think they're driving more innovation than than law firms and because law firms still to me seem very resistant. But I think the the audience is, is really everybody who was like me, who's kind of in the world of innovation and would just like to have one book that they can look at that that uh, talks about the major issues and things that come up, points you to resources, gives you a handle on things, points out some potential pitfalls, and allows you to gain the knowledge you need to do things in your own way. So, I mean, I think the the audience to me is if people are chief innovation officers or are actually involved in innovation efforts, I think they're absolutely an audience. I think people uh, on the business side of law firms or business development side of firms that are looking at innovation, definitely a topic. I think, uh, you, you know, I said law departments especially, I think that clients who want to see more out of their law firms may see some benefit in this book. And then I think anybody involved in anything that they consider law 2.0, let's call it, or new law will find uh, some information and questions and, and other things of, of value in the book. So that's really the audience. So I'm, I'm just trying to help the person who is working in innovation and sort of feels that they're they're alone. They don't know exactly where the resources are. I just kind of want to give them the, the help they need and the guidance that they need. Um, so that they can go and accomplish as much as they're able to accomplish.
1: So I'm going to stick with the title here for a minute and ask, uh, I I remember that when you asked me to take a look at this a while back, um, the title actually had a different name. You were calling it a legal innovation playbook instead of a practical guide. What was it that made you change your mind and, and go away from the playbook idea?
0: Well, I think this goes back to the notion of sometimes, and you alluded to this a little bit, but sometimes people will be talking about innovation in law or legal innovation, like there's the one true method or, you know, the one true approach. And so I wanted to move away from that notion. And then I decided that there are a lot of ways to do this and to write the playbook was, you know, sort of meant like, oh, here's the recipes and here's how you do things. And here's step one, step two, step three. And to me, I just want to to guide people to be and help them be as creative as they can be. And I think that what what you're ultimately judged on on innovation um, is the outcome. And so I want to I want to look at ways that people could become much more successful in their in the outcomes that they were generating in their own approaches to innovation. And so it became more of a guide to me than a playbook, something that you could go back to and and look at different things at different times. You can read it from cover to cover, I think, but then can go... Go back to it in a way, Tom. It's like our collaboration book. I mean, somebody could read it from cover to cover, but likely what will happen is they'll they'll think through some of the concepts and then go back to certain chapters as they they face these things. But I didn't want to get into the thing where I'm, you know, you would come to me to say. Oh, how do I do this innovation program, and what's step one, step two, step three, and that that sort of thing? Uh, I want to say like more. How can I actually help you develop the program that works best with your people in your organization? And so that's. I just moved away from the the playbook thing because that was not really my focus i'm i'm not really that interested in facilitating design thinking sessions and in you know some some of those things it's like more like a a higher level sort of guidance so that that explains the uh, the the change in the title
1: Let's talk a little bit about kind of the, the get into the meat of the book. I noticed that you the approach you take to innovation is something you call a portfolio approach. Can you, um, can you kind of explain what you mean by a portfolio approach to innovation?
0: Yeah, I mean, we sometimes have talked about this on this podcast. And it's probably the one of the most influential things that shape my uh, approach to law and technology and other things I do is is what's known as modern portfolio theory, uh, which uh, someone won a Nobel Prize for. But we we usually think of that in terms of our investment portfolio. So we know that we want to have a diversified investment portfolio. It needs to balance. Uh, in, in accordance with our own risk tolerance, sort of conservative, uh, moderate and aggressive investments, and it wants to measure our time frame, And that uh, we run into trouble when we're too cautious and when, when we're too aggressive. And so we get the best results when we balance those things. And, and to me, that applies to innovation as well that if I'm super cautious in everything I do in innovation, I'm not going to see over time uh, a lot of results. Uh, if I'm super aggressive and I just do like a few things, I'm probably, if I'm running that innovation program, my odds of losing my job uh, are, are going to go way up. But if I have a nice balance of things where I'm trying a lot of things, I'm balancing you know risk and reward that and, and looking at the whole program as it fits together, I just think your results Im- improve so much. And, and so I've used the portfolio approach in so many things that I've done. And, and I think in innovation, it is especially makes sense. And it's a great way to, to kind of match the organization's risk tolerance um, with what they're actually doing. And I think you can actually get some alignment and, and get better
1: results. And so, as part of the book, you also kind of describe innovation as being a discipline. And I'm wondering either one, whether that's connected at all to whether to be a discipline, it has to be a discipline in order to get to that portfolio approach. But maybe could you expand a little bit more on that idea of innovation as a discipline and and what it really means and how it kind of relates to what you talk about in the book?
0: Yeah, I I think that it's one of those things and it goes back to the whole, uh, you know, lifetime learning, diversity of people involved, all all the things that I I find extremely important is that I sometimes people think of innovation as oh I go in a room and there's post-it we put post-it notes all over the place and we come up with new ideas or we're looking for ways to to make a process more efficient or other things like that. so what I say is like, there are pr- approaches into innovation that work, that are accepted, that are used in other industries, uh, that I think most important for lawyers, those approaches are very customer focused and customers are involved. And I think a lot of uh, what happens in law leaves the customer out of the, the conversation but I think that it's something that can be learned and improved on and, uh, and so that's why I see it as a discipline. So I say if I'm going into the world of innovation, then I'm really taking on a, a subject that I need to get better in almost every day. So I need to learn what's out there, what the tools and techniques are out there, what's changing, how to measure results, um, it just brings so much together. And if you say this actually is a discipline and that to get better at it, I need to do certain things. Uh, they, you know, keep me learning, keep me involved in conversations, you know, send me to conferences, you know, all those sorts of things happen because I'm not going to get better just by saying, uh, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy more Post-it notes and uh, Sharpies to put things up on the wall.
1: Well and, and the book is not about and I think you we talked about you talked about this a little bit at the beginning of this segment this book is not necessarily about tech innovation this is really about business model innovation which is kind of the whole looking at it in a more I guess a more holistic way why is that i mean i think that you have you've spent more of your life in legal technology why why expand it why looking at business model over in, innovation over tech innovation
0: well, I think a lot of that came from my time at MasterCard and especially in the, the time I was with the uh, the digital technologies and labs groups where we were looking at innovation and so much was happening around uh, business model. When I've talked in the past about productization of services, when I go back, there's this whole thread that really is about business model. And I think sometimes lawyers say, yeah, I'm thinking about business model. It's like, can we move away from the billable hour? And I'm you know, like, OK. Okay, so you, if you're just talking about doing flat fees, that's one thing. But um, I'm I like to look at radical changes to the business model. And so in the classes that I teach, I say, okay, so there are other business models out there. What can they be applied in law? Can you do products? Can you do subscriptions? Can you do you know, information, you know, again, products of, of, of that type as well. Can we sell books? Can we do these other things? And I think it's that business model approach has, as I worked on this, pulled together so many ideas I've had in the past was the open source licensing approach, other things like that. To really look and say, are we challenging with what we do in innovation, the existing business model as well? And are we, are we looking at the business model as something that can be changed to, again, enhance the value that we bring to the customer? And so I think that's the issue in law is this big disconnect. And I saw it from being on the in-house side especially, big disconnect between – The traditional provision of legal services, the traditional acceptance of legal services from clients and the lack of conversation about how that could be improved in so many ways by by changing to different business models.
1: So, before we close out this segment, let's maybe talk a little bit about the publication of the book. I think you've chosen to do something that a lot of authors are doing these days, which is self publishing uh, to Amazon Direct rather than have a publisher. What made you decide to go that route for publishing this book?
0: Well, what I decided is if all of, you know, if ultimately innovation um, and and i it's, i got a lot of this notion from my friend Dan Lena if a lot of innovation at its core is the scientific method and experimentation then my publishing should be an experiment as well. And I've been wanting to do self-publishing for a long time. So this is like the 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 perfect opportunity in, in a way to try that. So I'm, I'm learning that. And it's, it's different from working with a publisher. I, I had to go out and find a, a book designer and get a cover designed and all of that. And now I got to figure out how to get it up and priced and, and uh, distributed through Amazon, which I think should be super easy. But, you know, depending on what I learn from that is something that I can apply in other cases. And the time from when I, you know, wrote the first word of the book to the time that's available on Amazon is actually very short. And I like that because time, you know, when you write a book, it just feels like it takes forever from when you started to when it actually comes out. And so, so that's appealing to me. And it's something I think that once I learn that I can share, uh, with some of my, uh, you know, with you and other of our friends who are thinking about self-publishing. I mean, I would guess, Tom, there's what a 95% chance if we wrote another book, it would self-publish.
1: Uh, well, I guess we'll have to have that conversation. I don't know what that next book would be about, but, uh, Always willing to talk about it. I always like experimenting, although we won't be experimenting for you at that point. Um, but speaking of Amazon, let's wrap it up. Let's let, Last question of this segment, where can we get the book? What's the price for the book? And let's say maybe we're not ready to buy the book yet. Is there anything else we can do or get from you that would help us uh, maybe decide whether we want to get the book or not?
0: So I fully believe that the book will be available when people are listening to this podcast. And um, you know, one of my frustrations with the other books we've published that I've been involved in is it's a high cost. So one of my things was I definitely wanted to have ebook version, Kindle version that was very you know nicely priced and reasonable. And then Amazon also does print. And demand uh, paperback uh, that kind of comes along for the ride so I believe unless I change my mind in the next day or so that the the Kindle version will be 1999 and the uh, the paperback version will be 34.99 so sort of in range with uh, what I think people pay for for books of a specialty type these days so I don't want it to be a $300 book I want more people to read it. I want to help people. And then i have giving people a taste of it because even now you can get a free PDF download of uh, uh, it's, it's not one tip for each chapter. There's actually a couple more, but uh, there's 57 tips that I've uh, put together as a download. And that's a part, that's a chapter in the book, but it's a free download on my website. And I may... Do some experimentation with those tips and, and send them out as daily tweets. I may do like a, an audio thing. Tom, I know you'll be interested in this. I was uh, listening to somebody talking about how you can do like an Amazon, uh, these Amazon skills in connection with your book. So that's another place that uh, I'll be looking, but PDF download, then just be to Amazon and, uh, you know, successful, uh, innovation outcomes in law in in my name, and, uh, you should find it. Um, and, uh, I'll be happy if you buy it. And I would, I would love the feedback. And like, cause I, I mean it to be a guide to help people do innovation well. And, uh, uh, you know, one of the things I mentioned in the book, I, I just want to help people, give them that little bit of guidance that they need to help them, you know, be the hero of their own story.
1: Well, congratulations on the publication of the book. And I'll add that uh, those of you who do buy it, if you get a chance to go on Amazon and give it a rating, I'm sure Dennis would appreciate that as well. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a break for a message from our sponsors.
0: visit
1: www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. We noticed recently that the seemingly eternal
0: debate over the question, do lawyers need to learn to code, is, is making the rounds again. So we thought it might be a good time to revisit our answers to that question and see whether they've changed over the past few years. It also gives us a chance to mention an online uh, computer science course for lawyers um, that Harvard is offering online and discuss whether Tom and I should actually take the course And then report on our results back to you, our audience. So Tom, code, no
1: code, or some code? So I don't know what, I can't remember what my answer was the first time we addressed it, but I've got to believe that it's going to be similar to what my answer is now. I I think my general answer is that some lawyers should learn to code, but all lawyers? Uh, Because I think that's the question. Do lawyers need to code? That's do all lawyers. I just don't see the purpose. You know, most lawyers never going to need to write code, which frankly, tell me where code comes up, except for in really the development of legal or other types of apps. You know, a lot of lawyer entrepreneurs who came up with legal apps still partnered with people who knew code. They didn't necessarily do the code themselves. They just needed to understand how it worked. A lot of big firms, especially ones who have you know significant innovation programs who are really getting ahead on this, they're starting to include coding for lawyers um, that are interested, which I think is a great idea to help lawyers understand really how to develop legal services of the future. But certainly in those firms, I don't think all lawyers in the firm are required to do it. I think it's available and that people can participate if they want to and be part of that. I do think it's important if we're talking purely from a competency standpoint, what lawyers should know about. I think it's important for lawyers to understand code and how it works, you know, even from a basic standpoint. I think that's why the Harvard online course is a pretty good idea, and I think you're going to talk a little bit more, I'll let you talk more about that, but I sort of view this more as a lawyer should understand what code is and associate with smart people who know how to code if their job requires it kind of thing. If you want to go into an area of law where you're developing new legal products um, or or being on the cutting edge or innovating or doing lots of access to justice, um, coding definitely should be part of your education, whether you're in law school now or... Or a practicing lawyer, you should be getting into coding. But I, I think it's a little much that all lawyers need to learn to how to code to be successful as lawyers in the future. I just, I just don't, I can't be persuaded that it's, that it's an all type of thing. I think lots of lawyers it would be useful for, but not everybody. Am I off base, Dennis?
0: No, because I would say some lawyers need to learn some coding in some situations. And it's it kind of comes back to my approach to technology competence. You know, there's you got to figure out what it is that you're doing. And um, so in the abstract, does it make sense for, uh, you know, somebody who's a, a lawyer never going to run into to learn some coding? I mean, um in the sense it kind of keeps your brain active and gives you a new skill to learn. Yeah. You can make a little bit of an argument there, but I think that as if you say, I have a client issue that involves coding, then, then you have to, as you said, time, you either have to learn it or get an expert who's going to help you learn enough that you, you know how to handle things. And I think that if you're working in the technology area, it's important to understand what is going on if you're working with apis uh you know other things like that you kind of need to know how that stuff works I, i i think fortunately you don't have to go too heavy into coding most of the time but if you're working on something that where the coding and how it's done you know whether it was copied for somewhere else you're gonna you're gonna have to need to know some things and then i also think you can't abdicate Um, and say I don't need to learn coding you know I had a conversation with somebody the other day who was talking about they're really concerned about bias in AI and I'm like you know and the algorithms this and the algorithms that and I'm like you know you can't just throw up your hands and say, I'm really worried. So, you know, we can't do that at all. I think you're obligated to try to learn what's going on there so you can, you can understand what's happening and have a, a reasonable approach to that. So that's where I am. I've also noticed recently from talking to some recent law school graduates that um, those who've learned codes, even though the firms say they're interested in that, they do not feel it helps them get jobs. And partially they're concerned that the firms might look at them as flight risks, that they'll, you know, come and learn the legal stuff for a while and, and then go and start their own company because they, they know how to code. So there's there's a really interesting dynamic out there. But in the midst of that, I saw, and I sent this to you, Tom, that that Harvard has this online course, uh, which is their basic computer science course, but they've fine-tuned it for lawyers, and it's available for free online. And if you pay $99, you can get a certificate if you complete it. And I think that uh, for lawyers who are looking at uh, becoming more technologically savvy, it's it uh, could be a really good idea. And, and that's why, Tom, we were talking about just doing a challenge where we both took the class and and reported back on our, our results. But I, I think for some people who took computer science courses, which I did almost 40 years ago, so I'm not saying I remember a lot from it, it you can refresh yourself on uh, some concepts, do some projects as, as part of this course. It could be really interesting. If I were a, a, a law student or a young lawyer, I would I would actually pay the 99 bucks and finish the course and get a certificate and get it on my my resume. So um, definitely something people should look at. And Tom and I know it, you and I will be discussing kind of offline whether we're going to go to the uh, computer science uh, course challenge b- between now and the end of the year. But... Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away.
1: So it is no secret that I am a Google fanboy, and I will confess that lately the things that are making me happy are just very small, interesting things that that some of the Google products that I own are able to do. And, and what I've noticed, I, I I wound up purchasing a couple of Google Nest Maxes, which are the larger Google home type devices that have just beautiful, beautiful screens that show my pictures from all of my vacations. And it's just beautiful to look at. Um, but what's really nice there is I could be listening to a podcast or watching a video or listening to some music on Spotify, um, in one room. And let's say I needed to move. It's time to start cooking dinner. I need to move to the kitchen. All I have to do is talk to the Google home and say, Hey, move, whatever to the kitchen and instantly would take whatever I was listening to or watching and immediately start displaying it on the other thing. And I, you know, this, it's the little things, no big deal. It's not anything magic, but the fact that we can kind of seamlessly go throughout our lives without having to start things up or do thing, you know, start over again downstairs to me is kind of, there's a little bit of magic to that. And I know it's a little thing, but it was making me happy this week. So I thought I'd mention it.
0: Yeah. I, I think that I think those little things are good. And, and this really wasn't on, on the script, time, but I noticed today I got an email from uh, the Rocketbook people that they the beacons, I think we talked about. Uh, the beacons and are like, available. They're That's available right. now, 15 bucks, these little plastic pieces you put on a whiteboard and it makes it super easy to capture uh, what you've written on whiteboards for later use. Uh, just like a really cool, small technology. But th- there were two things I wanna mention, both of them are real quick, so one is, uh congratulations to Dave Weiner for who has now been blogging for 25 years at scripting.com. Um, he's also the creator of RSS and podcasting and somebody who's, uh, definitely was a pioneer that, that Tom, or is a pioneer that, that Tom and I followed. The other thing I want to mention is the ABA's legal technology resource center. Um, women of legal tech recognitions are, uh, uh, program is now, uh, the nominations for that are now out, now open. So you can nominate people to be considered to be added to the list already of 100 women of legal tech. And that will be decided, I think, at the end of this year or the very beginning of next year. And there will be a Women of Legal Tech Summit on the day before tech show. But this is your way to uh, make sure that the women that you know, uh, whether it's yourself or others who are in legal tech uh, get recognized in the way that they should be.
1: And so that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mall Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode. Actually, that's a surprise right now. We're working on where those show notes are going to show up. TCAMReport.com is not the most reliable place for us to post them, and so we're working on that. So look forward to that uh, announcement on that shortly. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes. Or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts with transcripts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us on LinkedIn. Or remember, we've got voicemail. Call us at 720-441-6820. So until the next podcast, I'm Tom Mile.